Hello, I'm Steph. And I'm Mel. This is East Asia for All, a podcast about East Asian pop culture and media. If you're listening right now, you, like us, probably also have an addiction to East Asian films, cartoons, memes, music, and much, much more. Between the two of us, we've lived on and off in China, Taiwan, and Japan since 2007. We also both have PhDs in Chinese history and are now working as professors. I'm at St. Olaf College in the Departments of History and Asian Studies. And I'm at Monmouth University in the Department of History and Anthropology. So we're taking our love for East Asia, our experiences there, and the knowledge we've gained in the Ivory Tower and bringing it to you. On today's episode of East Asia for All, we're tackling a topic we've covered a few times, 20th century Japanese imperialism. Yeah, that's right. We did a mini-sode on Japanese fascism and how to spot fascist trends. And we recorded that episode in January 2016. Hint, hint. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we also examined the impacts of Japanese imperialism in colonial Korea and Taiwan in our interview episodes on the films The Handmaiden and Warriors of the Rainbow. Now, both of those films were set during the Japanese occupation in the early 20th century, roughly 1895 to 1945, depending on the location. But in today's episode, we think about the Taiwanese film Cape Number 7, directed by Wei Desheng, which was set in a much later period than you all may be familiar with, the 2000s. Yes, the new millennium. (laughs) So what does the legacy of 20th century Japanese imperialism look like after decades and decades of change? And how is it remembered, not only by the colonized and colonizer, but also their descendants? Exactly. Those are the kinds of questions we're going to discuss in this episode. Now, you might think that Cape Number 7 is going to be somber and serious, given what we've said already, right? But you would be wrong. Yeah, the movie is part melodramatic romance, but also part zany comedy. And it's set in the gorgeous coastal city of Hongchun in the southernmost part of Taiwan. The main plot centers around efforts to set up a concert on the beach where a Japanese pop star is scheduled to perform. Fun fact, the Japanese pop star who performs in the film, Kotsuke Atari, is a real pop star. As is Van Fan, the actor who plays Aga, the main character. In the film, Aga is a failed postman who teams up with other Hungchun locals to form a band for the concert, as he also falls for Tomoko, the unsuccessful Japanese model who is coordinating for the event. And as this main plot unfolds, Aga also opens a package that contains a letter from a Japanese teacher who left his Taiwanese lover after the end of the Japanese occupation in 1945, and Aga struggles with how, or if he should at all, find its rightful recipient. Yeah. Through the relationships of these different characters, Aga and Tomoko, and the older lovers from the Japanese colonial era, Director Wei shows us the intimate layers of human relationships that form within the matrix of Japanese colonization. However... We need to point out, as historians such as Peter Zero have noted, that the, quote, sentimental indulgence, as he calls it, of Cape Number 7 also really glosses over much of the trauma of the colonial period in favor of reconciliation. How to characterize both the colonial period as well as Taiwan's current relationship to Japan is an understated and unresolved tension throughout the film. 
Right. And we're also so, so excited to be joined on this episode by Dr. Fang Yu Hu, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. Dr. Hu's research focuses on gender and colonialism in historical China, Japan, and global East Asia. Her current project examines girls' primary schools in colonial Taiwan. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome, everybody, to our episode on Cape Number 7. We're very excited to talk about this movie. Um, and we're also really excited to have Dr. Fang Yu Hu with us to help us discuss the movie. So, uh, Fang Yu, can you introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Fang Yu Hu, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Um, I want to talk a little bit about myself. Uh, my research is on intersection of gender, education, and colonialism as I focus on girls' education in Taiwan under Japanese colonialism, um, which is, was from 1895 to 1945. I teach classes on modern China, Japan, East Asia, and world history, as well as gender and wartime memory. Thank you so much, Fang Yu. We're super excited to have you. Um, you know, when we contacted you because we wanted to do an episode on Taiwan, um, we asked you actually, you know, what film you would like to do. We had some ideas, but we asked you and you chose this film, Cape Number 7. So we want to actually start with that. You know, what made you want to discuss it? You know, what about the film was appealing that you wanted to talk about it? I don't actually consume Taiwanese films in general. Uh, but I heard about this film, Cape Number 7, because it is the highest grossing domestic film um, and the second highest grossing film in Taiwanese cinematic history. Right. So I was intrigued by it. Um, and so I, after watching it and when you contact me, I decided this was a film I won't really want to talk about because I've actually... I actually haven't talked about this film with anybody and I want, I've been wanting to. Um, so I, I chose this film for two reasons, um, a personal reason and a professional reason. Um, as a one point by generation Taiwanese American, um, the personal part is the diversity um, in the language spoken in the film, um, Mandarin Chinese, Taiwanese Holo or Mingnan, um, Aborigines, which is um, Bukai um, specifically, um, Japanese and English. And this is how ordinary Taiwanese people speak. Um, and people don't really speak in completely Mandarin Chinese that I re recall seeing as a little child in Taiwan before I moved to the US. Um, and that was right before and then immediately after martial law ended in Taiwan. Um, and so this was a really refreshing for me to see on screen. Although I understand that there have been films that were made um, that made that reflect this language diversity before this film um, but I again I don't usually consume them um, and this was my first one and also then professionally as a historian um, and it is a historical connection and um, the symbolism that this film provided um, so as somebody who studies Japanese colonialism in Taiwanese schools the love story of the Japanese teacher and the Taiwanese student um, that opened the film and then really ended the film is very interesting to me, although it occupies for a little screen time throughout. Um, the teacher as a figure of authority, but a Japanese man, really represents a defeated nation, Japan. Um, and he seems like he's too ashamed to live with Japan's colonized Taiwan, represented by his the student, Taiwanese student. But the bond, however unequal, was created and remains in Taiwanese society. Um, 
hence colonial legacy in Taiwan. Um, and so this is the positive spin of the relationship that I saw. But the more critical spin is that the, the defeated nation, although deemed masculine as represented in a male character and therefore supposedly the stronger and powerful one, ended up abandoning his partner, uh, broke his promise to be with her, and didn't even have the courage to mail his letters to her. Um, so this sense of abandonment likely resonated with the Japanese educated generation of pioneers, as Leo Ching um, argues in his article on the memories of Japanese colonialism among the generation of pioneers. Yes. Oh, thank you. That is such an insightful analysis of this romance. Um, and also is really helpful because one of the things that we wanted to talk about was this language diversity. And you mentioned very brief, briefly the Japanese educated generation in Taiwan, which I think one of the great things about this movie and why it probably appealed so much to Taiwanese audiences was it's so focused on its audience that it doesn't even bother to explain, oh, yes, the generation um, in Taiwan at that time would have been educated in Japanese. They would have spoke Japanese. Um, none of that really even gets um, like explained in any way. It's just assumed. And so that's one of like the things that we liked about the movie. And we really wanted to talk about this really diverse mix of languages that's happening that, as you said, really represents Taiwan. And what that diverse mix of languages tells us about Taiwanese identity. And also, like you said, how they're used within the movie. Because as you said, like so many characters would move back and forth between languages, like in their own speech, they were obviously at least somewhat fluent in, in like lots of different languages. So do you want to tell us anything about how the languages work with that? So I, I think this, like you said, um, the language diversity is one thing that resonates with um, the audience and the cult switch that happened. Um, so each character and also um, it reflects reality in Taiwan. Um, uh, typically, a Taiwanese would speak at least two languages. Uh, they might be very fluent in one and somewhat fluent or maybe you know, also master both like two languages. So I, I would say usually two languages, maybe more. Um, so and we see that in the film as well. Um, so Taiwanese Mandarin, that'll be one combination. And then in the case of the older generation, um, represented as the in the um, postman, the elderly postman who plays um, Yue Qing, he speaks um, Japanese and Taiwanese. Um, and then you, you also have the Japanese um, model character who speak Japanese and, and Mandarin and English, actually. Um, and then you have, I remember this is a very little part, but um, English has started to dominate, not dominate, start to um, influence, infiltrate um, pe um, people in Taiwan. And so you hear a few long words. So when I just, they're actually just inserting English words in, in there. Um, so that's also part of that. Um, and then, um, of course, I don't even mention Taiwanese, uh, Taiwanese and Mandarin. Um, so there's definitely that mixture. And then people cold switch. And then there's another thing, again, resonates with, with me as well, is that people would choose the language they speak depending on who they're talking to and it's very age or generation dependent. Um, and so um, if people even notice in the film when, um, for example, the policeman, the younger policeman, when he was talking to the main character, Aga, they would speak in Mandarin. But they both obviously also speak Taiwanese, um, as when they speak to the postman, they speak in Taiwanese. Um, so that's what you see. And then of course, the the policeman, he's um, an Aboriginal 
And so he also speaks his native tongue, um, Lukai. And so he speaks three. And like, can we see a character who speaks three in addition to the Japanese who is actually foreign, a foreigner coming to a place who is not home, she has to write language, you know. Um, but in the case of the policeman, he's a very interesting, Lama, that's his name, um, character name. It's a very interesting, um, represents a group of people in Taiwan who master more than one or even two languages. It's so interesting. And I'm just thinking too, you know, for our listeners, if they're watching the film, if they don't, even if, you know, for me, so I was watching the film and I was watching it with Chinese subtitles and my head was just like swimming with all of these languages, right? And I was just thinking, wow, so much of this, at, at the very least, I've had, you know, exposure to um, Mandarin, Mandarin in Taiwan um, and Japanese. And then from living in Taiwan, you know, hearing Taiwanese. But if you didn't know that, you know, all of that just kind of goes by. And especially if you're watching with subtitles in one language, it can't help but feel that, you know, somebody needs to go through and make those subtitles really clear, like they did in The Handmaiden, right? You know, color, did this code color coding or explanation. It's such an important part of the film. And I really was thinking of that scene, too, where the like where Aga is talking to Tomoko, right? And he uh, or no, he's talking about her. And he says, well, I don't understand her when she speaks Chinese, right? You know, there's this really <laughs> so many layers of language. So I really, yeah, it's, it's, it's so Taiwanese. And it was so cool to see that represented. And the next question that we have actually is a, um, a little bit of digging into um, what you mentioned in the beginning, um, Fang Yu, about choosing this film. You know, we were doing a little bit of research for the film and we came across this article by Peter Zero, who's a China historian, I guess he had a blog or something like that, but he called Cape Number no. 7 a bonbon with a sour plum filling, this idea that it's kind of a sweet and it has like a little tragedy in it. But overall, you know, it's a nice little package of kind of sweet that you eat. And his critique was that it's a really sweet and it's a really easy story and that it really kind of glosses over you know, these these historical layers of, of colonialism in a lot of ways, even though the layers are there for the Taiwanese audience that, you know, maybe its portrayal is is really soft, you know? And so we were thinking about, okay, so that's Zero's take on it. But are we, you know, does that take really miss something that's important about the film? Is it maybe kind of critical of Japanese colonialism in a nuanced way? Or how do we kind of read that? Does Zero have a point? Um, or from a Taiwanese perspective, you know, is there something deeper about this film? It's not just sweet and easy, if that makes sense. I think I watch this film very different from differently from probably most audience in Taiwan, uh, because most people in Taiwan probably do not have the training in the colonial history like I do. Um, and definitely, definitely not the so-called older generation, like my parents' generation, um, who are basically the baby boomer generation, they would not have background. And then even people um, around my generation will probably not, they, if they're about 10 years younger, then they, they would have acquired some Taiwan background in Taiwan's history because of um, the, the change in curriculum after Chen Shui-bian, the Democratic Progressive Party candidate, won um, the president see for the first time 2000 um so there were some changes but other than that people really have don't really have much knowledge um and so, so th there's that um but so with that said though um for me i do think he has a point um there the film in general was pretty lighthearted. it seems that everyone well get along with each other no problems but i 
think that um, the, obviously, um, just like in any society, ethnic inequality and discrimination definitely existed in Taiwan and continue to. Um, but though I would say there are probably less than before, and um, definitely it's also generational. The younger generation seem to embrace this more cosmopolitan, diverse um, Taiwan rather than um, focusing on segregation along ethnic um, backgrounds. Um, and so, for example, um, if we talk about the film, so these are little instances I picked up and one can interpret as moments of discrimination. So the one, for example, Stephanie just mentioned when Aga said, I don't understand what the Japanese model was saying in Chinese, um, as if for me, the, when I heard it, it sounds like she was criticizing her accent mm -hmm. uh, for confused. So that's where that you're using that as a pretense for why he didn't respond to her and so forth. Um, and then there are also two places where I picked up this. So um, the local representative who was also um, Aga, the protagonist, um, his stepdad and his, and his staff, um, they, when they were trying to figure out who uh, they would choose as a band member, when they referred to the policeman, they referred to them Aboriginal instead of calling you know, for example, I keep on referring to him by his profession, um, policeman, because it's very visible when you watch a film. Um, yet, they refer to him by his e ethnicity, which is mm. striking to me. Um, and there's also an, another place where um, the local representative and his staff, they're referring to the um, Malaso, the wine vendor, um, who's Haka, <laughs> of Haka um, group, also as Haka, instead of saying Malaso, which, he, which uh, no one would miss his name. I, I feel like I could miss no. everyone else's name in the movie. I, 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 I wouldn't miss Haka or Tomoko's name, really. But um, other people's characters, I probably, it's just really fast. It's harder to right. remember their names. But I would not miss Malaso's name. Yeah. So, oh, it's like burned <laughs> into my brain. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's, so again, again, it's, it's striking that for them to say, the, the Haga, um, the Haga person. And so this right. is where, again, because the representative, he belongs to the majority group, the Taiwanese holo group, um, who speak Taiwanese, what we commonly know as Taiwanese, Taiyu or Minan. So that, that's where you can feel like he, he's, he's identifying people as, if you're in my group, then identify you differently, but you have a name. And if you're from a different ethnic group, then I identify you um, with, using your ethnicity instead of something else. Um, even when I know what your name is or your profession. It's like so ethnicity first, like that's the first thing. So, okay, yeah, that's really mm -hmm. interesting. Right, and so that's weird a little bit, but again, you know, some people might not pick up on it or even they did, they doubt it's maybe really minor, harmless, and they don't mind. Um, but again, when um, with your question, I was thinking about a few instances I've encountered when I was doing research in Taiwan. Um, so for example, something that's, um, close to the affirmative action we have in the U.S. Um, for college entrance exam, um, a similar system exists in Taiwan for the Taiwanese Aborigines groups. Um, and I've heard, it was, it was just one time, but I heard a Taiwanese graduate student comment just bypassing saying, it's, it's not fair for them to get into college that, you know, um, when their score is lower than the test score wow. that we have. Wow. Um, and so that comment suggested to me that they might not know the history or understand the, the discrimination and all, all that stuff that I think many of us are aware of, um, it, at least when it applies to the United States. And so that's where, even from, even though I, I don't know much about the Aborigines um, situation in Taiwan, I, um, I can 
to map on my knowledge of the U.S. situation to Taiwan. And so I'm obviously sympathetic, but for people who are living in Taiwan, they don't necessarily see it that way. Um, right. And I want to say another comment interesting for me was that I saw it was actually on a popular it was among two actors, and one is Aboriginal, um, and the other one isn't. He belongs to the um, the what called Han Taiwanese. He he was like, oh, you can't drink alcohol, but I thought all Aborigines can drink. Why can't you hold alcohol? Why, why won't you drink alcohol? And so from and the other person, I'm not sure she was offended or not, but I took it as if if it was acceptable for him to broadcast his interview. Um, this was like a backstage thing. Then it reflects something, says something. And well, so I and think, again, there's definitely tensions and there's still a lot of problems. Um, and the film didn't just, I think, completely erase it. There's, it's still there um, if we sort of pay attention to. Right. Yeah. And I think, I, yeah, that's another thing that you might miss because there are linguistic markers that you don't pick up on or something. And and what you said, Fang Yu, it also really resonates with me. I wanted to share an anecdote, too. I remember when I was um, studying Chinese in Taiwan um, and we were discussing a- Aboriginal people in Taiwan. And, you know, my teacher was asking me about um, Native people in the U.S. And she also mentioned the stereotype about alcohol and singing. That was the other thing, that these were the two kind of stereotypes. And, and she was very cognizant of, you know, I don't really know that that's true, but that is, you know, like a stereotype of Aboriginal people. And it really struck me because, you know, these are also stereotypes that are associated with different, you know, ethnic minorities in the U.S. And the this idea, yeah, seems to be really prevalent. Oh, we can, this is, you know, we can discuss this. This stereotype is so pervasive that we don't question it. And maybe that's changing in Taiwan. I think it's changing in the U.S. I hope it is. I don't know. I want to be hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> on, um, the younger generation of Taiwanese I met, academics or non-academics. Yeah, I'm hopeful. But I think changes take time. Um, and now I want to go back to a question of well, whether or not the film is sympathetic to Japanese colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, when I mentioned what I mentioned earlier, again, I... I watch a film with a more critical eye, set of eyes um, than maybe a common um, Taiwanese audience because of my background in, ta- um, in the colonial history. And so I don't, I think in general I can say, yeah, maybe perhaps um, it seems like you're trying to resolve this colonizer, colonized um, power hierarchy, power relations in the film by you're creating this, the contemporary model, the, the contemporary couple, the, ta- the Taiwanese man, the main character, Aga, and then the Japanese model, uh, the, the woman character. Tomoka, and then yeah. when he was in the, in the, in the end, he was saying, um, don't go, like, I said, don't go back to J- Japan. Um, but then he did say, oh, I go with you. So there's a sense, when, you know, Red House is like, oh, it's not just about a woman has to follow the man's lead, it can be the other way around in our contemporary society. So I definitely see so-called improvement in gender, um, concept about gender relations in Taiwan for sure um, and I see that in reality too like in Taiwan um, and, and but then if we look at the colonial setting the the couple the, the Japanese teacher and the Taiwanese student I, I think there's definitely a, a lopsided relationship there and um, I actually discussed this in my um, book manuscript that's why you know when we say it's it, watching this film again after since I'm um, as I'm working on my um, book manuscript, it's, it's very interesting. So yeah, it's, it's definitely unequal. And the fact that he had a de- he the Japanese teacher was the one with the decision to leave. He can come and go. If you think about the Japanese colonists, they came and then they left, um, whether or not it was by their 
own choice, but they came and they left. The Taiwanese was ever over just in a way she was passive in that sense, you can say. Um, totally, yeah. And so it seems like, yeah. in, a, in a sense, it's falling into this binary, um, you know, colonizer colonized narrative. It's not really complicating it. Um, and also, is portraying the colonized as a victim, passive victim, and without agency, even though, again, um, if you go look at the history, Taiwanese people obviously had agency, including students. Yeah. And that brings up one of the scenes that really struck me, which is when the Japanese teacher was leaving with all of the rest of the Japanese after the end of the war, when Japan was leaving. And there was this scene in which all of the local Taiwanese people were waving and they seemed really kind of sad and wistful, like definitely no portrayal of oh, they're so glad that the evil Japanese are gone or anything like that. There was nothing like that. It seemed like a heartfelt goodbye on the part of both sides, which I thought was really interesting. And then side note, I do want to ask what your manuscript is about and how this fits in. Um, I want to hear this but too. I know. So go ahead and answer whichever one first. I'm sorry to throw two questions at you at once. Okay, thank you. Um, remind me if I forget something. <laughs> no problem. Um, so I think... So I watch it with um, certain things in mind. So if we think about who actually sent out people, you know, when you're partying, it's probably people who are sympathetic to these people or friends or know these people. Whether or not we're talking about colonial situation. So when I first watched the film, I thought, well, okay, you know, because if you hated them, you wouldn't go and see them off, right? Right, Um, true, that's true. (laughs) And I think there's definitely different experiences among people. I haven't haven't dived into, look at the different reactions among Taiwanese um, at the time of Japanese defeat and so forth. But based on my interviews, I interview over 50 people, uh, elderly people um, who were born between the 1920s to 1930s. And they generally, I would say they're nostalgic for the Japanese. And I definitely address that in my book manuscript. And then some, I, I'm, I'm remembering particularly a couple of students who mentioned that, oh, I don't know why I didn't send out my teachers. Like, they, they obviously they were fond of the teachers. They actually invited a teacher back and they had a reunion um, in Taiwan a couple of decades later. But um, they didn't go. And they mentioned they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't go. And they don't know why they didn't go. But for me, I knowing the context, war was horrible. The war was horrible um, globally. And the case of Taiwan, um, after Japan's defeat, even before, in the late, towards the last couple of years of the war, there was rations quota. And so people's lives were really horrible. People were going hungry and so forth. And so I, I think to myself when I watch that scene, even if reflect some kind of reality, well, um, people who were able to worry about the Japanese, they would go and send them out. But people, I think the majority of people didn't have time to think about the Japanese. Um, they were trying to figure out how we're going to, get food on the table um, at the end of the day because there's, there's inflation, um, high inflation, um, especially, especially after the Chinese Nationalist Party resumed or began the civil war of the um, Communist Party right after the war ended of the Japanese against the Japanese. They, the, the Nationalist government was directing a lot of resources from Taiwan, whatever still there, food supplies to um, mainland China to fight in the civil war and also directing some of Taiwanese soldiers over there too as well. So, you know, and so I so I don't think the Taiwanese really had time to think about the Japanese, you know, on um, their leaving and then pretty quickly. And I, I think the the impression I got after um, having read some historical documents and studies was that 
initially at least adults were happy yes we return we're, we, we're returning to the um, ancestral land we're happy the japanese are, are gone they're, they oppress us so that was the evil part we don't like them um there, there, and then there were also definitely instances of people taiwanese people hitting beating up japanese but the number of instances uh, was definitely much lower than what was documented in Korea or Manchuria. Mm-hmm. Uh, the was much lower in Taiwan. That's something also puzzles some people. I haven't studied that part, so I don't really know the reason why. Could be that because Taiwan was a former colony for much longer than Japanese, and also it had a small population like in Korea, and so the Japanese way was able to control Taiwan much longer, and so people were somehow following so-called order. They wouldn't think about hitting somebody without a just cause um, or yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not really sure. Um, but again, I, I think most people didn't one really, were probably happy, you know, the adults were happy to see Japanese, maybe I don't care. Um, they're just like, okay, we're just trying to get on with our lives, um, figure out how to survive with the devastation that we have at home. Yeah, I could see too, like, even if you were, you know, happy that the Japanese were leaving, feeling a lot of fear about what's to come next, right? It's ushering in this period of potential instability that, you know, could be promising, but could also come, yeah, with with great costs. And, and clearly, you know, there was a lot of instability um, after the Nationalist Party really took hold in Taiwan with the Civil War and then in 1949. Yeah, it's it's a really, that scene really struck me as well. It's just such a complicated scene. And, and so many, so many layers of potential meaning that you can read in. You know, I've, I would love to hear more about your book and manuscript and how this fits into this question or if it touches on any of this. So I, I think I mentioned a, a couple of times already. So my, my book focuses on the educational system um, for girls. In particular, I focus on the majority, the Han group, um, which does include the Holo and Hakka speakers in here. But though I, I don't really address that difference in my manuscript, but, I, 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 but what I want to say is that I, I don't look at Aborigines, which has a separate school system um, in Taiwan, the Japanese set up a system mainly for the um, Japanese children in Taiwan, and then a system for the Taiwanese Han, Taiwanese group. Um, and then there is technically also a system for the what's called Plains Aborigines. Um, these are um, Aborigines who have been so-called more assimilated into the Han society um, prior to Japanese arrival. So these people, some of these um, people will engage in agriculture um, and so forth. And so they have a system, but their system resembles a bit more of the Han group, though not exactly. And then they have a system um, designed for the, um, what they call the mountain mountains aborigine so the basically the group of people we would associate with for example the group of people who we see in um the film um city ballet warriors of the rainbow um film for example they're still considered to be barbaric and uncivilized uncivilized so are they part of the the mountain aborigine group they're considered okay Okay. So there are four, in a way there are three, but for four systems, segregated systems that the Japanese set up. And I'm focusing on the Han group. Um, and in particular, I, I want to emphasize how gender um, really was also a, a powerful tool that a Japanese colonizer used um, when they set up the school system. They, so my main argument for the manuscript is that um, the colonial system was not only, clo- it wasn't just a colonial system in which the, the government, the colonial authority discriminated against students based on their ethnicity, or you can say 
assign design a curriculum accordingly, but it was also gendered. Um, and the curriculum was very gendered early on, where for, for the group I'm looking at, the Han group, uh, girls were trained to be so-called good wives and wise mothers. Um, so you are to then get education, you speak Japanese, you educate your children, um, speak how to speak Japanese at home and also follow certain manners um, and then how to create a sort of like a modern household by following um, these hygienic practices and, and, and so forth. Okay, so that, so I'm really trying to in, interject on um, gender um, and how that then, um, yeah, so there's that one part. Um, and then many girls in Taiwan still um, were not educated by the end of the war, even though the Japanese mandated Edu compulsory education during the wartime period. Um, and then so the enrollment rate in Taiwan actually was became the second highest in East Asia at the end of war um, after Japan uh, because of maybe mandate. Some people say no, it's too late in the war because people weren't really going to classes by then. Over 60% of girls were going to school then. Um, and 80% of school age boys were going to school in Taiwan, at least a Han group. But anyway, so I'm, I'm looking, I'm just trying to look at how ethnicity, the colonialism, gender play out on the school ground, even though, again, um, I, uh, one, one thing I think is inter interesting is that education sometimes is seen as a benign thing. Um, it's a tool uh, people can use to improve their status. So you would think, well, if the Japanese came in and said, we are trying to civilize you, modernize you guys, you guys are barbaric. So we're introducing this modern education, yet the inherent gender and ethnic discrimination biases uh, that are embedded in the whole system sort of stop that from happening. Um, so that's that's the topic I'm, I'm trying to explore this, the complexity and the nuances um, in my manuscript. That's a fabulously interesting. And it, it, it actually is a perfect segue into talking about Warriors of the Rainbow because there there is, you know, the scene of actually the Aboriginal policeman right, is teaching a lot of the little uh, Sadiq children Japanese. And we primarily see that one of the big critiques, actually, that we had of Warriors of the Rainbow was the lack of attention to gender, right? Women just kind of show up at, at well, in the middle, because it's like a two-part film, but in the middle and um, just more passive, you know, they, uh, spoilers to anyone who hasn't seen it, go see it, but they die by suicide by hanging. And so there's this kind of passivity and lack of attention to gender. And so... As I was watching Cape Number Seven, you know, because we've done this other episode and we've seen Warriors of the Rainbow, I've also taught it before in class. This is basically a Wei Sung fan podcast now. Yeah, apparently <laughs> we're just doing all of his films, um, which I'm okay with. But yeah, um, I, yeah I was great. just we were just wondering, you know, how you think it compares. There are these similarities, you know, the the Aboriginal policemen. Um, indigenous people in general and like portrayal in Taiwan. So how it kind of compares and is there a pattern? Does it grapple with similar issues and how, you know, maybe, maybe it has changed. I, I watched them in reverse. You know, I watched Cape number seven after watching Warriors. So I think it's a really interesting comparison. I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. So it's just been a couple of years since I watched um, Warriors of the Rainbow. And I, I, I don't remember if I actually watched it in theater with, because I happened to be in Taiwan when it was released and with Chinese subtitles. Um, and then um, later also, I think I watched it with, in English, with English subtitles. 
um, it doesn't matter either way because the the film was filmed predominantly in um, the speak language, and so which it, it doesn't matter what language, what, what captions we you know, we watch a film in. But I, I think um, there is so there's some similarities and differences, so called. Um, so I think for one, Kid Number Seven is a very light-hearted film. Nothing serious is going on. I mean, the serious like someone got heartbroken, but um, it's not that serious. Nobody's dying. Um, nobody's there's killed. there's no massacre. Yeah, yeah, um, it's like quirky and kind of romantic, right? Right, and there's uh, lots, there's humor in there. Um, but I, I do, and then I think you know what we talked about. I think the whole diversity and cooperation um, among different groups are definitely, I think, the, the the main message that we see from the film compared to Warriors of the Rainbow. It's it's serious. It's a solemn film. Um, and then for me, again, I've been watching a while, but I remember the message being more like small survival and respect. This is this is why they rebelled, so-called resisted. I don't think they knew it would work, but they had enough. They've had enough. So that's uh, just is a short answer to how they're different. In terms of how they're similar, well, one, you know, they're made by the same director, but that's not really the reason why, I would say. Um, it's more like from my sense from when I was conducting research in Taiwan is that people who watch these two films are, are people who tend to identify themselves as Taiwanese. So there's, I think now there are days, again, there, there's a less ethnic tension and definitely the younger generation, that's not their main concern. But still, like even though that's not their main concern, this idea of Taiwan versus mainland China is definitely I think, becoming bigger, bigger issue um, as time goes on among the younger generation. Um, and then, of course, it's affirmed um, still continue to exist among the old, young, older generation of Taiwanese who who have been supporting maybe more independent Taiwan or at least separate from um, China. Now, I want to note here that it doesn't mean you have to be. Um, if you support unification of China, you you have to be what's called Washington, the old term, or what I always call the Chinese immigrants from Taiwan to Taiwan after 1949. You don't necessarily have to um, be, belong to only that group, because um, I think about in terms of if you look at the elect electoral, even I when I think about my extended family members, it's about half half, and my extended family members are all Taiwanese, Polo, the Han Taiwanese, so where our ancestors immigrate from China a couple hundred years ago. So that ethnicity alone, again, doesn't determine your political stance. Um, but again, with the currently, I think it's more, there's a generational gap. So beginning before it would maybe ethnicity matter a little bit or who you identify with. And nowadays it's more, it's, it's less so um, as people become, in, again, I don't study, I don't study contemporary stuff, but um, people, um, don't care about that as much, but they do care a lot about Taiwan being threatened by China. And so they tend to want to watch, I think, something that they can identify with or that sort of carves out this distinct Taiwanese identity and feeling that I am Taiwanese. And then I know I've seen some survey in which some people identify themselves as both Taiwanese and Chinese. Um, so it could be a thing of national identity versus a, an ethnic identity um, that people are alluding to. Although I say most people, at least according to the survey, they identify themselves as Taiwanese. So I think they they're so-called very have very like Taiwan-centric view. They really want to watch films that have to do with Taiwanese society um, and Taiwanese history. Um, really, pretty much focus on that. And I think the younger generation, if they did not know the history, or maybe they, again, the younger one, they start to learn a bit more about Taiwan's history, they would find it interesting to 
see them in an entertaining way through the films, for example, popular culture. Mm -hmm. So if our listeners watch Cape Number no. 7 and they really liked it, thought it was entertaining and interesting. And had do awesome you have, music, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was all of the rock music. Great music. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any other recommendations for t- good Taiwanese pop culture that uh, our listeners should check out? So I mentioned before, I, I don't really consume a lot of films. Um, I try to start watching some, but mm, not really. Um, I start to consume some more of the TV um, program to TV shows. Some are quite interesting. Again, you also see the, the mixture of languages and so forth. I, I, but I would say I don't have any specific ones in mind. I think the newer films and books and TV programs that are coming out of Taiwan um, since two, the 2000s, definitely I think since 2000, maybe 10s, um, so in the last decade, it's been very pretty much, you know, you have this cosmopolitan perspective in there. It's very obvious, a lot of English words injected in there, which again, that's not something I remember growing up with in Taiwan or when I moved to U.S., my family didn't have those because then we came to U.S. and I mean, that's a different story. And so I would say just anything people might find interesting. Um, They've been from films that become blockbusters. Um, I keep track of some of that, but I haven't really watched any. Uh, But I just think people can just find whatever is entertaining to them. There are a lot of actors uh, who had a who started their career as singers or in in some idol groups. And so, for people who are interested in pop culture, mental pop, maybe they already aware of these. So for example, I, I'm I'm thinking about this one member of um, the group Fahrenheit. I think um, I didn't follow them. I'm not sure, but um, he actually I think he's more successful as a actor right now. Um, actually, there might be another one, two of them, not just one of them, but one more, I think, more popular than the other. Um, and then many, many others um, who, and then for example, actually, Kim Number 7, the protagonist, Aga, he's actually a singer. He's still a singer. I, I think he's, his primary um, focus is actually acting, I'm not acting, singing. He's not an actor, really. And wasn't the was uh, this wasn't the Japanese pop star also a real Japanese pop star? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it must be a tr- it must be like a thing or something. You know the crossover. I don't know what the director was doing, but yeah. And then the the person who played Tomoko, um, the student, is a, a singer also. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and then something. Um, and then I and then as we, we know the elderly postman Mobe, he's actually. A professional like player like Yue Qing player oh I didn't know that he was 100% my favorite character I he know. was just so grumpy and I loved him that's so cool the young policeman he's actually a singer too he's that he's actually a singer um oh wow so a lot more actually because I mean what's something what I do is I, I start to I think whenever I look at a film or a tv program I start being maybe a researcher I'm just curious what it is. <laughs> oh it's um, totally legitimate oh, yeah. research that's real that, <laughs> and then by something that's really interesting thing to me and I don't I don't know if people, I, I don't know anyone in, inter, in, a, in the entertainment industry in Taiwan, so I have no idea. But the, the actor who plays the protagonist, Aga, he's actually Aboriginal, although I don't know. Van Fan, I think his name? Uh, pardon me? Van Fan or Van Fan? Oh, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He, because historically speaking, a lot of, because Taiwan is such a, in a way, diverse, not diverse in the, in the sense of America, maybe, with different so-called races, I say so-called because race is a made-up thing, but um, it's, it's a, the different groups of people in Taiwan for 
basically census history um, with mass immigration from Ch um, China and then later on, even till today, um, that people always have to navigate with each other. And so you people will learn um, how to speak languages of the other group. So again, look at the young policeman character in the film, he spoke three languages. And so I don't know if the actor who plays Aga, if in real life he speaks, speaks um, his native tongue um, or he doesn't have any more, he lost it somehow. And then the, we never heard the language, I don't, we didn't hear language Hakka spoken in the film. For example, because this is recent, the first popular elected president of Taiwan, Li Deng, who passed away recently, um, he's actually a Hakka, but he does not speak Hakka because his family live in an area where the majority are the Taiwanese Holo group. And so they learn to speak Taiwanese, so-called Taiwanese, so Taiwanese Holo, but they, the family just were lost the Hakka part. So I don't know, you know, again, in terms of the protagonist, the Hakka, you know, what his background is. Um, and then the Tomoko student character, she's Aborigines as well, even though, again, it's interesting, I think both Aga and then the Tomoko student, stu Tomoko the student, um, they both, or at least in real life, when I look up the background, they're actually um, Aboriginal, different groups, but Aboriginal, yeah, they play Han um, right, right. in the film, and so this is, I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, or if maybe the director or the casting staff did it on purpose when they, you know, cast it actors in the film, but there are actually quite a lot of um, Aboriginal representation, even though they're not explicitly represented as so we only saw, we only saw two in the film, the two policemen. Right, as like explicitly marked. I feel like it must be, because it seems like, so, you know, the director, so Wei Deshang, because that, you know, in at least in Warriors of the Rainbow, he was very intentional, right, about having Aboriginal cast, you know, having in Aboriginal language and even, you know, actors, if even if they were Aboriginal but had lost their language, which seems to be a pretty common experience that they, you know, had a chance to learn those lines and learn some of that language. So, I mean, I'm, I'm always on, I always err on the side of there's always a deeper meaning. So I assume that it was intentional. I'd be so curious. Yeah. I wish we could do an interview with the director. I know. Well, we we should send him an invitation yeah. and be like, <laughs> of course you'll want to come to our little podcast. You know, you're just this worldwide famous director. Please Zoom with us. <laughs> yeah, you could maybe Zoom with us. Well, thank you so much, Fang Yu. It has been so amazing. Such a great conversation. We have had so much fun apparently being the Wei Dishang, uh fan podcast. And so we're happy to, to bring you on. And it was so cool to, to hear about the project that you're working on. It's really important stuff. There's not many, you know, projects out there that are looking so closely at this issue of Taiwanese identity. And so I can really see why, you know, you, you chose this film. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I want to say since um, we're starting a Wei Dishang, um fan club, Maybe somebody should talk about the film Kano um, next time. Um, I, I, I watched that film. Um, and the, my understanding is that Wei Deshun, when he did his film, he, he filmed Cape Number 7 to what I heard was he, it became popular. Um, he actually then used the profit to fund um, Warriors of Rainbow, which was his, actually the project he's been working on. And then, um, and of course, later on, he decided to let one of the actors from Warriors of Rainbow be the director. And he was, he was still producer of the film, but he, he didn't direct um, the film Kano. Um, but what I understand is that he did Kid Number 7 is a film from the Han Taiwanese perspective. 
Warriors of the Rainbows from the Taiwanese Aboriginal perspective, and Kano is a um, well, baseball is a film from the Japanese perspective. Even though again, all these three films involve different groups of people in Taiwan, many of all of them. Um, but he was trying to do a different perspective, and he's actually working on a film about um, about Taiwan from the Dutch period. Um, oh, and wow. so, when you know, going back to the question of what film or book I would recommend, well, maybe follow what Wei Dushan is doing. <laughs> direct producers or interested in. I think yeah. he's very interested in presenting Taiwan's history to the Taiwanese audience because many people um, were not educated um, in that. And I don't know if I heard the school curriculum has changed once again after um, Chen Shui-bian's presidency, um, Ma Ying-jeou, who's, who's, um, who belongs to the Kuomintang, the Chinese Nationalist Party, they removed some of the more Taiwan-centric history and then put more back of the actually Han ethnic Han Chinese perspective and remove right. actually what I heard some um, Aboriginal history as well and, and that's really contrary to what a lot of people work on Taiwan history they, a lot of time they actually look to the Aboriginal group as the focus um, or as the marker of Taiwan's distinctiveness from China which is a problem in itself I think it's always it, to try to somehow just identify the indigenous group as the reason why Taiwan is unique um, instead of looking at other aspects but he again going back with with Ashan, he's some someone that I, I pay attention to um after after watching cave number seven. It's such a great recommendation. And that's the yeah. second time it's come up, right? Because in our because Liu Qing also, who's a big baseball fan, so we'll put it on the pipeline, <laughs> the Wei Dushang fa- uh, fan podcast pipeline on the way. Great. Yeah, well, so thank much you fun. So much. Thanks again. Thank you so much. If you like East Asia for All, you could really help us out by telling others about the podcast and leaving a review on iTunes. We're lucky that we don't need funding or donations right now, but we could use your support in getting the word out. It helps other people find the podcast. For show notes and more information about the podcast, visit our website, eastasiaforall.com. You can also find us on Twitter at East Asia for All. Thanks. 